Hello and welcome to the Hacking State Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. With me today is Jason Snyder. Jason, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Alex. Thanks for inviting me. It's good to have you back. Um, so as uh, maybe some of our listeners would know, uh, you and I spoke a couple of times on my last um, on my last show, uh, Goral Politics, about, I think originally we, we had a discussion with uh, your friend Jared Jaynes about mm-hmm. sort of metamodernism, and we talked a lot about mindfulness. Um, and then later on, we kind of got more into your background and area of expertise, talking about sustainable development um, and a little bit about game b as well if i remember correctly um but this is a new show uh we're doing hacking state and part of hacking state is sort of going up the chain of the human os trying to look at different systems of human social organization and how they can be adapted or broken out of um and one of the big things that you're sort of known for in a lot of online spaces now is trying to sort of forge an alternative for different kinds of like local political economies and local um, sustainable development and community building uh, with your Doomer Optimist project. And of course, with your um, daily work uh, as a faculty member of Appalachian State. Um, So I want to just have you on and talk a little bit about um, the challenges inherent to that. Um, So to get started, uh, I just wanted to, to ask you a little bit about the founding of Doomer Optimism, kind of how it came about as a movement and where you think the state of it is right now as a community? Yeah, okay. Um, Well, it's, so the first time we talked, uh, so that was with Jared Gaines and I was still, we were still doing the Both Hand podcast. Um, About that time around beginning of 2020 when all the, you know, insanity started, um, you know, I, th- that was also a big changing point in my life as well. Uh, I had just right before the pandemic, I had just moved to, you know, a house with some land. Um, our family did to start up a homestead. And my, I guess my priorities were shifting, you know, moving from both and was very much oriented towards kind of big picture kind of galaxy brain, you can say, you know, game B, metamodern, whatever, 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 uh, kind of big ideas, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think prior to 2020, the big ideas were like, what was what was fun, it, you know, it seemed, seemed uh, relevant, it seemed useful to like, rethink a lot of fundamental priors of our society. Uh, but you know, 2020 rolls around just a lot of insanity the next few years, and things get really very real, right? Like, it's no longer in the future that some some big thing is going to happen. All of a sudden, history is happening, right? It's happening right now. Uh, and so that all, all of, you know, confluence of factors, my own personal life, things, my own personal life, things that were happening, you know, everywhere, uh, caused me to really change my focus more towards kind of, one, just biophysical realities underpinning this whole human project, right? Uh, that could be energy availability, that could be, uh, you know, ecological overshoot, um, that could be, you know, climate change, it could be any number of things. And then associated with that, the, you know, political, economic, uh, and even mimetic kind of <clears throat> correlates of that, you know, one of my theses is that, you know, as biophysical, um, I, I won't say collapse, I use the word collapse, but I don't mean that in like a day, it's going to all collapse, and then that's it. It's more like a process but the memes will get more and more surreal, right? The, 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 the people that we blame 
the scapegoats will become more and more bizarre and more and more like it's it's going to just become hyper modern. You can say mm. very kind of surrealist sense. Yeah. Um, I met up with a person, uh, Ashley Colby, who was kind of thinking along similar lines, thinking like we need to kind of like get back to what's real, get back to what's tangible, you know, like, you know, farming, growing food, building things again. Um, and she was kind of of the same persuasion. We did a series on the Stoa together, kind of just fleshing out some ideas around this kind of meme of doomer optimism, meaning that like things are in many ways, politically, you know, socially, biophysically, like things are, are not sustainable, right? They're, they're not going to last. Something is going to, something has to give, right? Um, so that's the doomer part. But, you know, we're also like anti-nihilist. We're like, you know, nihilism is not the response to this. Uh, we need to uh, recognize the challenges, you know, the existential challenges really, but move forward, um, you know, with, with hope and optimism, basically, it, it, you know, at the very least in our own lives and hope, hopefully that radiates out, you know, beyond, beyond our own lives. And so that was really the premise behind Doomer Optimism. You know, it's mainly a podcast, although it's, you know, a community, you know, group chats, sometimes there's various meetups, um, but the, the podcast is rolling. Uh, we have, we've had about 150 episodes recorded now in less than two years. Um, you know, just lots of fascinating conversations with lots of fascinating people. And it's also operates kind of as a collective where we have at least a dozen hosts or at least a dozen people who have hosted the podcast. And, and so, you know, it's, there's a lot of people who are like kind of buying into it and taking partial ownership of, of the, the kind of the enterprise. Um, mm. So that's, you know, so that's, that's kind of where we are. We get more into the details as we go through the conversation. Yeah, sure. So I guess that gives people a good uh, place to start. Funnily enough, uh, in preparing for this interview, uh, you know, I'm like, I'm a developer, so I'm using like GPT in my daily workflow for all kinds mm -hmm. of problems. And uh, I thought I'd ask ChatGPT if it knew what Doomer Optimism was. And it turns out it does. It's in its yeah. like data set. And mm -hmm. so it gave me a response. I'm just going to read to you um, one of the lines that ChatGPT gave me about what Doomer Optimism is. Just yeah. because I think this is like just a very funny um, juxtaposition. Um, so GPT told me, Doomer optimism acknowledges the difficulties of life, but encourages individuals to seek meaning and fulfillment despite the prevailing gloominess, <laughs> which is, I guess, yeah. in some ways, um, definitionally what, you know, a, what you would imagine a Doomer optimist to be. Um, yeah. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, I've seen lately there's a good amount, and I guess this happens on all kinds of um, with all kinds of Twitter subcultures. There's been a lot of, um, I guess, discourse around the movement. I'm not sure. I, I don't have a close enough view to know if it's coming from inside or if it's coming from outside. So it it appears to yeah. me as discourse around the movement um, about sort of various kinds of like infighting and signaling and counter signaling and particular like political affiliations. And I just wanted to take the opportunity to ask one of the co-founders of the movement. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think that Doomer optimism is inherently political in the sense of being partisan? Um, mm -hmm. Or is the game that the Doomer optimists are playing kind of a meta political move? I would say it's a meta political move. Um, so, I mean, people who are attracted to Doomer Optimism as a meme, you know, there's there's a few kind of core commonalities. Um, 
generally people are, are not satisfied with status quo. Um, they see they're kind of doomers in the sense of either, you know, in political institutions, social institutions are decaying or biophysical things or, you know, what have you. Um, and they're generally interested in kind of like, if not already, you know, kind of seeking out tangible stuff in their lives as well as meaning and beauty in their lives. And by tangible, I mean like doing stuff with your hands, right? Like, can you, can you build things? Can you fix things? Can you grow things? Uh, you know, where's, where's meaning coming from, right? Are you developing good relationships with, you know, your family, with your neighbors, uh, et cetera. And so that, that's kind of a commonality, but, you know, mm. people can have that kind of commonality, but have wildly different perspectives on, on, on many other things, right? Especially on, on politics. So, you know, we have, uh, you know, we have some pretty, like, I would, I would characterize them as leftists associated with the movement. We have some, you know, what I would characterize as reactionary type, type sensibilities associated with the movement and everything in between. Um, people mm -hmm. who are more Luddite, people who are more kind of techno enabling, right? So that's maybe a different, another axis. And so you can imagine that, you know, you, tr you throw all these people together in a room or let's say a large group chat, you know, there's going to be a lot of infighting, right? Like, like you, you followed each other uh, because you both like gardening, but it turns out that you're, you're, you know, totally different on, on various political questions. Um, so, th so that's, so one way I would describe kind of what's happened with Doomer Optimism is we've gone from a big tent movement or trying to be a big tent movement. We're trying to fit everybody in the same room and be like, Hey, let's connect over these tangible things. And maybe these other political questions either aren't so important or because we've developed trust around these other things, we can hash out these political things. I think we've moved from that to be like, okay, we're not a big tent. We're more like an encampment, right? Mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, many different groups, subgroups have their own little tents, right? Uh, but it's, it's part, it's still part of an encampment. There's still kind of like this kind of meta protocol or meta political kind of sensibility, but, you know, people, you know, some people just can't stand each other. And so they're, they're going off into their own tents or their own group chats or, or what have you. Uh, and, and so it's kind of like an, an encampment uh, with, still some people who are able to kind of weave in and out of different places, right? So this is where the idea of like mimetic mediation comes in. Uh, I've talked about, you know, I think I've talked about before on your podcast, where it's like, okay, like the people who can kind of, you know, relate to pretty different ideologies, uh, and, or at least get along with people with many different ideologies can kind of weave in and out. Whereas the people who who can't or don't want to kind of just hang out with with their own crews, right? And develop their own things. And so I think that's kind of what's been happening with Doomer Optimism. I mean, you know, every few months there's like some kind of big drama, which is probably really funny to outsiders. Um, I personally think that every one of these kind of stress tests uh, just makes us more resilient and stronger. I would say that we're anti-fragile as a movement that way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so maybe that that might be kind of some of the the drama that you're seeing from the outside and, and Twitter itself is a medium that, that, you know, uh, people like to stir up shit on Twitter. You know, Twitter is kind of a shit storm, you know, as you know, by its nature as a platform. Uh, but if you look at the podcast, you know, we put out two episodes a week um, and they're just, I just think they're really high quality conversations. Um, and no matter what's going on in Twitter and people are fighting, like we're still cranking out really good, you know, really good conversations and many different kinds of conversations with many different hosts or hosting these conversations also with right. their own sensibilities. And so, you know, I, we've evolved and we've kind of differentiated, you know, but I, I'd say that, you know, we're as strong or, you know, as resilient as ever. So it seems then you 
by your own account, have a relatively eclectic group of people, what would you say are the main through lines that actually bring them together besides a sort of sentiment of, you know, I mean, I guess there's a kind of inherent uh, supposition of like impending system collapse and mm -hmm. then a kind of response to that, which is like, you should get ready. <laughs> yeah. But what right. what are like the main like sort of guiding principles that unite this group of people, some of whom are classical leftists, some of whom are more reactionary types, yeah, um, et cetera. So it's funny when we, we early on when we got started, we did this thing where we had all kinds of people write their own mini manifestos and we put them on the Substack. So like 15 or 20 people basically define what's doomer optimism to you. And that was a really interesting exercise. Um, you know, I, I can I can't speak for everyone. I, like we haven't, you know, we haven't formalized in our Ten Commandments or or something like that. Um, you know, for me, I, I would characterize it really as a metamodern movement. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I think that uh, where we're highly influenced by kind of the postmodern critique of grand narratives of modernity, especially of the twentieth century, uh, but we're also you know, feel like we can't stop there, you know, or, you know, we have to move beyond deconstruction. Um, wait, hold on, let me get a sip of water. Um, we have to, we have to reconstruct, we have to start from the ground up, you know, meanwhile, yeah, many of us do think that kind of our current institutions aren't long for this world. You know, there's different, people have different ideas about how long, like some people are like, you know, we got a you know, more of the prepper mentality of like everything is going to come down and we got to like, you know, you know, prep and, and other people. I'm probably in this latter camp where it's more like a multi-decade process where things, you know, legacy systems are just going to get shittier and shittier. Um, and so let's start investing in the alternatives. Right. The, the alternatives. Uh, let's let's engage in prefiguration, as the anarchists like to say, where, you know, let's let's create the institutions, the, the patterns um, and the ways of living that are resilient to both, you know, kind of shit hitting the fan, but also can provide a template that can be scaled out, you know, once more and more people realize that the current systems, you know, aren't, aren't viable anymore. Um, so, but to me, that's really, a, you know, that's kind of like a very much a metamodern, you know, kind of thing. Now, if, if you ask most people who are associated with doomer optimism, are you a metamodernist? They, they probably say, I don't know what the fuck that is, right? And so, mm, so right. like, the labels don't really matter, but that's just how I characterize it. Hmm. Um, okay. So would you say that you're still sort of in the phase of um, finding the others? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're trying to do many things at once. Um, we're trying to find the others, um, create networks uh, of people all over the place. Um but we're also, it's not just, you know, part of finding the others is, is finding people who are doing real interesting things in the world, right? Um, so, you know, one of our kind of taglines is like connecting seekers to doers, right? So big part of the podcast is like bringing people on either who have a really interesting set of ideas uh, that they're putting forth or are just doing something really interesting in the world, whether it's Maybe they they're creating a homeschool cooperative, or they're a permaculture expert, or you know what have you. Um, and so, it's finding the others, but it's also you know I think we're very very much in the early stages of okay now we found the others online, you know we're mm. developing a network, but how does that translate in, in in the tangible physical world, right? And 
and we're still still thinking we're at the very early stages of that. Like we've had like regional meetups where people in like Pacific Northwest or you know the Driftless of Wisconsin or Southern Appalachia, you know, who have kind of met up to these networks, you know, are starting to meet up in real life and you know thinking about you know what can we do together, you know, how can we start building something together. Um, so it's it's finding the others. It's it's also just you know it's it's um, developing a a very you know a very healthy and 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 very informative kind of information stack that okay you know if you're plugged into this network there's just tons of resources available to you right you want to learn how to do homesteading you know there's tons of resources available to you you want to uh, you know again learn how to you know do some kind of homeschooling or whatever there's tons of resources available to you so yeah I, I, it, it's that plus other things i guess mm, and so it seems to me like a big emphasis is being put on um sort of uh supply chain like breakaway supply chains is sort of how i would put it you want to create your own um you know sources of energy independence food independence water independence but also even maybe an entirely parallel um economic system where mm -hmm. the members of this community eventually and i'm sure most of them are not in this phase yet um will get much of their um much of their livelihood from actually interacting with other members of the community um it seems to me like that's sort of the long-term vision whereas right now a lot of what's happening is um i don't want to say like parasitizing because it's not it's not parasitizing because it's actually still creating value but yeah. you're sort of co-opting the existing system and then using it to bootstrap building out uh the alternative sort of parallel or um it's almost like a um i forgot what it's called but like an enclosed container inside of the larger uh organization uh organizational structure um that is just sort of like operating um by itself you know um is there a uh regional focus on this does it not matter whether people are co-located um how important do you think is sort of the the physical um mapping or proximity of individuals yeah so on your first point i don't think where I think realistically, we're not trying to create a parallel society where we're kind of completely buffered and closed off from the rest of society. Um, you know, all, basically all of us have a foot in mainstream society, right? Our livelihoods, where we work, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's, I don't personally see that as a bad thing, right? You have to kind of protect yourself from, you know, what you view as the toxicities from mainstream society. So there's a certain degree of like, you know, you have to maneuver a little bit uh, but, you know, we're not trying to create this kind of hermetically sealed, you know, secret society. Like, that's just not what we're trying to do. Like, we're like, if anything, we're trying to encourage people to reach out to your normie neighbors, right? And talk to them about, you know, uh, food production or whatever, or, or th just other things that are value to you. Um, and so we're trying to, like, I think, so I, I would say right now we're kind of in spore mode where you know or, or another framing i like is is a we're trying to build a cosmo local network again this is my framing if you ask another doomer optimist and they might not think in these terms but a cosmo local network where 
we're basically encouraging localism, but we're doing it over the internet, which is kind of ironic. Um, but you know, the idea is that you know, you know, when when it comes to most of the the tangible things in your life, you know, you should try and be as localized as possible. But uh, we should also take, you know, we should also leverage the power of the internet, um, you know, this of uh, collective intelligence to, you know, support each other informationally, maybe even, you know, financially or whatever, you know, across localities, right? Mostly or mostly in the United States, but more and more increasingly, you know, in the whole world, right? So for example, we had some pathetical podcasts with some Burmese dissidents, right? Who are like mm. basically underground, you know, because of the, you know, the coup d'etat that happened a few years ago. Um, and, you know, basically we had these conversations of like, you know, what are you doing? How are you surviving? You know, how can people support you? Things of that nature, right? And so, you know, we're trying to create this kind of, you know, as, as far reaching as possible uh, network, right? That uh, also encourages, you know, getting your hands dirty, you know, in your localities where you are. Um, forget, did that answer your question? What was the second part of your question again? Oh, um, well, I mean, yeah, that, that, that basically answered the question about sort of co-location of geography i just oh yeah let me let me let me let me get to that part yeah so the co-location um what i don't what i wouldn't want to see happen is everybody moves to like new hampshire or something and we're like the doomer optimism state like yeah right I, right, right. We're gonna i don't take think that's gonna West happen Virginia. i don't yeah i don't want that to happen um you know i if, if people in the network decide to move near each other i think that's all to the better that's great uh, but I think more the emphasis is on, you know, this is a, you know, an online network that should support you in building your own, you know, uh, your own thing, wherever you happen to be or wherever you, you, you decide that you want to be. Um, and, you know, the, uh, but, you know, we've, I've, plenty of people have met, met people who are close to them regionally through the network, right. Mm -hmm. Including me, uh, one of my best friends regionally he reached out to us because he listened to the podcast and now he, he lives an hour away and he's one, of, he's one of my best friends here and and you know we help each other in all kinds of things right so that's so that's kind of like using the network to actually localize and and and, and build these these things so, so i guess finding the others is not is, is both kind of far reaching to the network but also like using it to create some momentum you know where you are and i i, I tend to take a very kind of bioregionalist kind of view of like scale where I'm like, okay, I'm really interested in Southern Appalachia as kind of a concept. Um, mm. And so, you know, the more that I can um, develop very dense networks and communities and community within Southern Appalachia, the better. Um, so that's like, you know, my priority while I'm still part of this larger network as well. And that's, that's I think, what I encourage everybody to do. And one thing I wanted to ask you about that I actually didn't mention um when we when i proposed the show but is something that's been in the back of my mind since we've been talking and so i'm sure it's in the minds of many others who might be familiar with the concept is when you're talking about the formation of uh an internet community that then reaches back down into the physical world and then becomes a real community um mm. one of the things that comes to mind as a term that's been coined recently is the network state um mm. laji srinivasan's term um, I believe I interacted with you a little bit about this uh, last summer when I was reading the book. I read the book like pretty much right after it came out. Very excited about it. Um, my opinions on it have uh, shifted slightly 
since I first encountered the idea. But I know that the DO community also got a lot of questions and feedback um, about their sort of take on the network state concept as it was proposed by Balaji Srinivasan. So I wanted to just take the opportunity to ask you, what do you think about the network state? And do you think that the project of DO is um, commensurate with the network state? So it's interesting. So I wrote a thread. Um, I, I haven't read the book, but um, there was a there was a quote from Balaji's book uh, that I saw, and I wrote a whole thread uh, on it, um, where at least how it was initially presented to me, um, uh, I didn't I didn't really like it. Uh, and the reason is that I felt that um, that it was almost it was too neo colonial for me. And and what I mean by that is. That it was this idea of like, okay, you know, a bunch of people who who are drawn together based on, you know, a, a shared set of ideas are going to go basically, you know, buy up this whole, you know, uh, you know, area, you know, set of, you know, area of land or, or whole kind of archipelago, ar ar I can't even say that word. Anyway, you know, a bunch of different kind of spots of land and they're going to, they're going to have some kind of uh, formal recognition as a state, you know, through the network, but they also have physical holdings and it seemed to me that it was too cut off from the localities that they were going to set up shop in, right? So it's like, okay, we're going to go set up shop in wherever, um, Nicaragua, right? And we're going to build this kind of like walled garden that's like one of the land holdings of our network state. And it's like, okay, so you're just like the new colonists, basically, right? Like like coming into an area, not not interacting or, you know, not being very... Uh, uh, you know, positive sum with the locals. And so that was kind of my initial, how I interpreted it. And I didn't really like that. Um, Balaji actually reached out to me. He, he responded to me in, in that, in that thread and it became a longer thread. Um, and, uh, and also in DMS. And I think we kind of, we kind of built a bridge towards that. Cause I was talking about, you know, the alternative is this kind of Cosmo local network where, each node is integrated within their communities and is, you know, building up their communities and they're not creating this walled garden, right? They're actually benefiting the local economy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they're not in an extractive relationship. Uh, they're in a, you know, they're in a regenerative relationship with their localities. Um, and he, you know, he proposed basically that you could use this network state framework to, to basically build this new, I forget what league it is, I, I, I won't even try and pronounce it, uh, this kind of league of basically like, basically a cosmolocal network, you know, in the middle ages or something. Uh, yeah. And you can use that kind of a network state protocols and stuff to do that. And I was like, okay, that's interesting, right? And so I, I warmed up to, you know, some potential applications of the network state idea can be interesting, but, it's a big, it's very important to me. One, that it's not just a, refu a refuge for digital nomads who have no stake, no buy-in to their physical locality um, and are just going to hop around, you know, to their various holdings um, and be the new elite, basically. And I was just like, fuck you guys. If you guys try to come where I live, you know, set up your thing, like you're going to have, you're going to have problems with us, right? Uh, but if it's, if it's kind of like a, you know, you know, uh, you know, a community that seeks to integrate with a larger community that they're a part of, improve it, um, you know, but also not, you know, just not, not conquer it, 
right? Infuse their ideas into it, but also learn from it, learn from the locality, right? And, and help support the traditions and the culture that was already there, then that could be very promising. Mm, okay. So it seems to me like your, your main objection is sort of a perceived power differential between the locals and the members of this yeah yeah i mean it seemed like these like like the network state could basically become the new global elite right who who just kind of like you know buy up you know buy up all this land all over the place through their network and you know basically have their own private armies or whatever guards or, and and just yeah. you know and 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 just extract from 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 locality and don't really contribute to it and that that would be I, I'd, I'd have a problem with that hmm. well i mean i guess <clears throat> i propose i suppose that could be one one version of it but to me at hmm. least you know and I, I did read the book I, I wrote a review about the book after i read it um i haven't revisited it too much since then but to me he did leave the concept open-ended enough that yeah. you could imagine all kinds of uh, variants of the network state that yeah. have maybe some of these features that you would be looking for um, yeah. in terms of, you know, integration into the community. Like one of the core sort of tenets of a network state is that it's it needs to be formed as a almost quasi religious community um, where the adherents are held together by um a belief in what he calls like a single moral innovation, right? Mm -hmm. And so depending on what you build your network state around, that moral innovation could have some of these aspects of, you know, we we integrate appropriately and socially and economically with the surrounding community. We're not some sort of like secure enclave, which is the word I was looking for earlier. Yeah. Um that is just sort of like a like a members only club where you have to like swipe your ID card and then you can come through the gate and then you get all right. this extra stuff that nobody else around can have. Right. Um, so, I mean, I guess in my view, um, I'm I'm satisfied enough with the with leaving open the possibility for different kinds of configurations. And it may be that, you know, one of them that's more um exclusionary is just politically untenable um and if that's the case then it won't it won't survive and they'll have to adapt and they'll have to come up with new versions um that make more sense in in different locales um yeah yeah and and to his credit again he did respond he made a very good faith effort to respond and persuade um and the league I, that he that he was saying that you know he was kind of uh, analogizing towards is the digital Hanseatic League, which was this, um, you know, I guess again, Middle Ages, you know, but basically it would, it would basically be this this idea of cosmolocalism where you have all of these localities all over geographically distributed who are kind of in these kind of collaborative relationships with each other, but are also defining their own cultures, their own, you know, societies, etc. And and so I, I guess, you know, part of it also is because doomer optimism is so focused on biophysical issues. Mm -hmm. um, like just the fundamentals of life, of, of life support systems in general that, yeah. you know, these, these, you know, network states would have to have a real stake in the biophysical, you know, regeneration of, you know, of their localities and in, in the planet. And, and if they're, if they're just kind of extracting value, um, you know, uh, in kind of this new colonial relationship, 
not so much. Hmm. All right. So I'm glad that we kind of gave the network state, I think, an appropriate level of treatment. Um, mm -hmm. I wanted to actually get into sort of these, what you're calling biophysical um, relationships and systems building a little bit more in depth um, mm -hmm. and sort of move away from DO as a as a topic. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that you've been doing the last several years and that I've enjoyed watching you do vicariously on Twitter is you yourself are, of course, a homesteader. And, mm -hmm. you know, since moving down to Appalachia, you've you've bought some property and you're building out a bunch of stuff. You've got like a chicken coop and a lake and a bunch of uh, crops growing and things like that. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit more and we've we've addressed it before, but we might as well for the new listeners rehash some of these things. Uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit about sort of your take on regenerative agriculture and sort of the homesteading movement more generally and your decision to spend a lot of time on it because, mm -hmm. you know, someone that's an educated professional like yourself um, might look at this activity and say, why are you using your time and your energy to mm -hmm. like grow your own food on your own property and develop all these um, enhancements? Uh, isn't there a huge opportunity cost there? How, how do you respond to that? Well, so, you know, my PhD is in applied economics. So I, I understand the, the economic worldview of maximizing utility. Um, I mean, first and foremost, you have to ask what is life for? What, what do you find valuable in your life, right? Like what are actually, what are you trying to maximize? Like opportunity cost for what? To make more money? to live, you know, in a, in a condo in the city, is that going to make you happy? Um, mm -hmm. I found that being disconnected from, from really, you know, all of the sources of my sustenance, uh, I didn't know at the time, but, you know, part of the reason I got so much into meditation for a while was because I was having mental health issues, right. And, you know, in various manifestations of that, and retrospectively, you know, I think part of that was that, you know, and I think this is just characteristic of modernity in general, and many people, much of the mental health, you know, uh, problems in modernity, is that people like, like, the, like, their lives have become so abstract, right? They like, if you don't know where anything that supports your sustenance even comes from, right, it just shows up at the door or at a restaurant or at the grocery store, you know, you turn the lights, the energy, just, the light just turns on. Um, I, th I think that there's this, th th there's like this fundamental untethering that, you know, this, this disembodiment that is incredibly, um, you know, bad for uh, our mental spiritual health. And so there's that, there's that aspect. Um, I also think that there's, there's much of our current, you know, economies, life support systems that just are not sustainable, which means that they're just not going to last in their current form. It uh, doesn't mean that everything is going to collapse. There's going to be an Armageddon. That's not what I'm saying. But I, I think that many people take for granted um, just very basic stuff like, you know, their shelter, their their food, right? Their water, um, their security and safety. Like it's just, it's taken for granted. Um, and, you know, we can get into all the reasons why I think that, you know, maybe we shouldn't be taking these things for granted or we won't be able to take these things for granted for very much longer. Um, and so that there's the, there's the kind of the resilience aspect or, you know, um, and then there's kind of the political economy aspect where, 
I tend to, I've come to the conclusion that, you know, subsidiarity, localism, but defining localism as subsidiarity, meaning that, you know, if, if you want like localized political independence, you also need some degree of economic independence as well. Mm -hmm. And you need to be not so completely dependent on, you know, a global economic system that might not have your best interests at heart. So the more that you can be you can never be totally buffered from it, but the more that you can be a little bit buffered from it, have a little bit of leeway um, to, you know, that gives you more political independence, I would say as well, or it, or it can, depending on the context. And so, yes, yeah, so there's, we can dig into any of these three, the the spiritual mental health, the, you know, just the, the resilience aspect and the political economies aspect. I just think that more localism, you know, I, I don't, I, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, a world where it's completely in the direction of localism is viable. I, I don't think that as well. I think we do need national and perhaps even international systems as well. You know, I, I, I can't, you know, I can't, my neighbor, you know, I can't dig up the, the minerals to make my own computer and have my neighbor assemble it for me. That's just not going to happen. Right. Um, but, and so there are some larger scale systems, but I think we've just gone so far in the direction of overscaled, you know, gigantism, I, I guess you could say, um, that it's just, it's not healthy. It's not, um, it's not resilient. It's not sustainable. Okay. So I want to get into, I mean, yeah, let's just go through all three of those points. Um, mm -hmm. I think we can, we could try that out. Uh, sure. so the first part you talked about was more just like for you on a personal level in terms of the kind of quality of life that you want to be living and in yeah. almost like phenomenological sense, right? Um, I'm reminded when you're speaking about this of, um, the book, uh, shop class is Soulcraft by Matthew Crawford, which mm -hmm. maybe you're familiar with, um, relatively it. popular. What? Yeah. I've, I've heard about it, but I haven't read it. Yeah. So, so, I mean, in this book, he basically is, um, you know, a political theorist who then went and decided to fix motorcycles for a living. Mm -hmm. Okay. Why did he decide to fix motorcycles for a living? Well, essentially he lays out the argument. And it's very similar to what you described, where um, there's a kind of alienation that seeps in, for lack of a better term, from his life doing. He was working in like policy or something in D.C. Yeah. Um, previously yeah. from just doing this very abstract knowledge work that's not really tied to any real um, deliverable, for lack of a better term, that actually affects people around you, that actually is integrated holistically into the community. Mm -hmm. and where you're actually just physically seeing the results of of your own work manifest in the world. And yeah. so in this book, he makes the case for working with your hands, working in the trades in particular, because of all of these other aspects that you describe, where you you're integrated well into the community, you have real relationships with the people around you with your work. Um, you also get the just personal satisfaction of being able to like, at the end of the day, look in, look literally like concretely at the thing you created and have it functioning in the world. Um, he also comments on sort of the feelings of like financial independence or um, self like self sustenance that mm -hmm. come from learning a trade, a skilled trade in his case, um, where you don't necessarily need to rely on some corporation or some large organization to support mm -hmm. yourself. You can, you know in theory, go into any town and you have a skill that other people need uh, that you can market. 
Um, and those are, that's sort of the thrust of the book and reflecting on it in my own life, you know, right now I make a living as a software developer. Mm -hmm. And while that is satisfying some of those needs in terms of, I have a real valuable skill. I can create things in the world that other people need and yeah. deliver it to them and ex do a very direct exchange of value. Um, I can build something. So at the end of the day, I can look at what I've done and I have a real thing and it either works or it doesn't. It's not some sort of uh, word game that I'm playing. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, it is still very abstract, right? And it's still not very um, embodied in terms of primarily, I'm just working with my cognition and uh, I'm manipulating all these abstract symbols on a screen. And um, there's not really a good sense of embodiment. I have to go out into the real world. I have to go to the gym or whatever if I want to get a more embodied mm. uh, form of like exercise. Yeah. So my question for you is, do you find that this work gets helps sort of balance out the other more cognitive stuff? that you're doing so you don't just feel like a brain in a jar all the time. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And and what you were describing of his, of his describing his process was very similar to mine where I felt, you know, going for my PhD, writing policy reports, and I was in kind of international markets and development. Like, it just felt like you're sending all this effort out into kind of the void and you have no idea what impact it's gonna have, if any, probably not gonna have any impact at all. And, you know, there's many, many reasons for that. Um, and, and yeah, I, I think that just this lack of feedback of, mm. you know, just very abstract work, it's not really tied to anything tangible around you. Like that's, that's not our evolutionary environment. There's this evolutionary mismatch there. Um, and it can, you know, and, and so I think that was part of my kind of psycho-spiritual challenges. Right. Um, I will say that. So, I mean, so I teach, you know, part of what I do is I teach. I also work on the size of a landscape company, landscaping company, and it doesn't pay well, but, you know, I enjoy it. You know, I, I, I and everything that you described, you know, and then I also work on my homestead, you know, everything that you described, I think is, is very much, is very much true. Um, you know, there's instant, uh, there's kind of instant feedback, right? Like either your chicken coop, uh, keeps out predators or it doesn't right either your crops mm. grow or they don't uh, that kind of thing and, or e either your clients with the landscaping you know the house you're doing either they like what you did or they don't and it's very instant feedback um i can see what you're describing with software being satisfying in that way as well like there, there's a little bit more direct tie to like you know did this create value or not and you can see how it created value um, you know, but then of course there's that embodiment aspect, you know, I also like the teaching, uh, you know, it's, I, I, I enjoy exploring ideas with young people, um, trying to stretch, help stretch people's minds a little bit. Uh, and that's, that's more of the cognitive, that's more of the abstract. And then the podcasting is, is also very abstract. So I kind of see it as a barbell strategy. Like, you know, I think intellectualism is good. Like I'm not an anti-intellectualist. I think you know, um, expanding conceptual space is good, uh, but you you really do need to balance that out with with you know just just being like physical you know in our case a physical man right who who just does shit and gets things done and you can see it right there and you know um, and so I, I yeah so I think I think for me barbell strategy um, you know having myself rooted down a little bit and really kind of 
embodied also affords me to to kind of go out there as far as I need and not get lost or not go insane, right? Um, it kind mm -hmm. of provides a nice tether for me. Uh, and it also, you know, it's a generator of ideas, right? You're working with living systems. Um, you know, you're, you're kind of connected to, I think, one of the main sources of ideas themselves, right? Like, you know, uh, you're connected to, you know, living systems, you know, of course, there's many analogies of how, you know, of, of how a garden can be related to life of like, you know, you know, having patience, you know, um, moderating your kind of uh, nervous system to not want instant reward necessarily, but like you, you plant a tree and then 10 years later, you get the fruit kind of thing. So there's a lot of like analogies that I think are very real of, you know, of, of how, um, you know, of how ideas can be generated from. I know you've interviewed Matthew Perkowski on your podcast and, and I have as well. And you know, I think we both know that he's really brilliant. And he, mm. he describes this very well of like how he, he's also homesteading, right. And how he connects these kind of like very physical things with these, you know, he's, he's very, very much on the cutting edge of a lot of, you know, um, uh, ideas that, you know, I think are, are very innovative. And, and I think that's a very real thing. Yeah. I didn't actually know that Matthew was also homesteading. So that's news to me. Yeah. He's, um, he's been doing it for a couple of years, but, uh, yeah. So I guess, you know, <clears throat> maybe someone who studied complexity a little bit more can has a better vocabulary to kind of describe some of these concepts, yeah. um, in more detail, uh, like Matthew does. I'd love to talk to him again sometime. Maybe we'll do that soon. Um, so I want to get into the second point here, which is sort of about resilience mm. and, Obviously, growing your own food, having your own chicken coop, crops, other things like that, it's all part of, uh, in a way, making yourself more resilient. Now, obviously, in the country that you're living in, in the part of the country that you're in, it's not as if there's any genuine concern for food supply or availability of food. Um, and hopefully there won't be for a very long time. Um, but how do you think about sort of building this out for yourself and your own resilience. Obviously, in 2020 and 2021, there was a little bit of a shaky time there where people were unsure, um, you know, whether the supermarkets were going to be stocked for a while with a lot of those supply chain issues. So mm. I guess the first part of this would be, did having that as a backup in your own life just sort of give you a little bit of uh, reassurance that, you know, probably you were going to be okay, even if, things did go a little bit haywire for a while. And then the second part of this um, is, you know, is also part of it just sort of modeling uh, resilience for, you know, your neighbors as well as, I mean, I know you have children as well as for them. Like, mm -hmm. hey, this is where your food comes from. Uh, it doesn't just appear magically on the shelf. Mm -hmm. And you have the capacity within you to, to provide it. And also you know, frankly, probably higher quality food in many cases and you would Definitely be higher quality food. many supermarkets. Yeah. So how are you thinking about resilience? Yeah, I mean, both of those things you said resonate. Um, I did feel a little bit more secure, whether I actually was like, like I'm not I'm not going to pretend that I'm anywhere near like self-sufficient. Uh, I'm not. You know, and, and I don't think that's really the goal to be self-sufficient as a homestead. I, I think I think the goal is you know, is really just to provide, 
you know, some of your food, uh, but also you have surplus that you can give away or barter with other people, you know, gift to other people or butter. And, but really, you know, my, you know, my interest really is in local food systems in general. And that's kind of my academic interest as well. Right. And so, and this gets to the second side, point of what you said of like, and this idea of prefiguration of where, you know, I don't think that industrial food system as it's currently composed is sustainable. Like I, I don't think it's going to be reliably giving us food um, forever. Uh, and, and so we, I, you know, from my view, we better start building up the alternatives now. Now, luckily where I live has a very strong local food culture and, you know, and it goes back hundreds of, you know, hundreds of years. Um, uh, but it can always be improved, of course. Uh, and so, you know, so, so, so one, you know, I just, I just see a society in general, if I picture like a more ideal society, it's one where the majority of people produce a little bit, right? They're producers, right? Whether it's just producing herbs on your window seal or having a couple of box raised box beds where you grow vegetables to having livestock to, you know, whether hydroponics, uh, you know, fruit trees, um, you know, I just think that, you know, a world where every locality is just teeming with, with people, people producing food is just a healthier society, right? The food, uh, you know, you know where the food's coming from, uh, the food's healthier in, in general, right? There's, uh, because it's not shipped so far and, and genetically modified to be shippable, but in, in that process, it lose, often loses taste or lose nutrition as well, um, you know, uh, I just think that's, you know, uh, it's a more ideal society is one where, you know, many people, if not most people are producing at least a little bit. Um, and, you know, and then, you know, some things, uh, you know, growing grains, for example, is kind of hard to do at a small scale. Um, and so, you know, I'm not completely against larger scale, especially for grain production, uh, although I, I think that we also have to change some of those practices to be more regenerative in, in, in general. Um, so I don't know if I answered your question. Uh, it gives me a lot of satisfaction to, to eat, you know, many of my meals with ingredients that I grew myself uh, or that I know where the, say, I'm, you know, I know where the meat came from, right? Like I, like, so I have this arrangement right now where, so I'm not using, I'm on five acres. I'm not using a lot of it yet. Um, and mm -hmm. so a local guy hates it. And we have a deal, a, a sharecropping deal, where basically he gives me half the value of the hay. Um, I can't use all that hay. And so he gives me, he, but he has cows. And so he gives me half the value in, in beef, right? And so that's pretty sweet, right? And yeah. then I also have other meat that I, that I buy from friends or, or just people where, you know, I, I know who they are. I've been to their farms. I know how, mm. I know how they, how they raise their, how they raise their animals. Um, and so that's, that's pretty satisfying. Um, and it, I think it creates when you're creating these functional relationships, right. Where like now I have this relationship with this local guy, you know, who's an old timer here in this region, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not just, you know, I'm still an outsider, but I'm less of an outsider, right? Like, we have a positive sum relationship. We're less likely to, you know, uh, to try and do, want to do harm to each other, right? We have these functional, this is like the, you know, this is like the, the Adam Smith hypothesis of like- Right, right, very- Right, like games from trade. Basis of economics. From trade. Yeah, this is lo like localized economics where you mm -hmm. actually, you know, you, you know, you actually know the person where you got your stuff from. And that's, that's pretty cool. Um, 
and so and i think i think we're eventually as society going to have to um relocalize especially i mean again we can't relocalize everything but especially food i think there's a lot of scope for relocalization i, I think that'll just it, it'll it'll address so many problems of our modern society um from mental health to sustainability to you know um to other things that it's just to me it's a no-brainer this will segue into sort of the next the third point on this mm -hmm. um which is are there any kind of like regulatory barriers to engaging in this way uh, and on sort of like a peer-to-peer -peer basis. I know, for example, I've spoken with cattle farmers on Clubhouse who've told me that there are issues with the FDA where um, they, for example, they, they my understanding is, and I could be miswording some of this, they're unable to sell you basically a, a whole cow. Like as a consumer, they can't, yeah. You, you can't go to someone and say, you can't go to a farmer and say, um, I want to buy a whole cow or half a cow. Um, I have like a deep freezer. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to like do all this stuff. There's like very weird stuff, especially if you're trying to do like interstate commerce or whatever mm -hmm. um, related to how they regulate meat production and butchering and all of that stuff, uh, meat yeah. processing where they have to go through certain facilities, they have to be able to go through certain checks in order mm -hmm. for it to be commercially viable. Um, and yeah. so I was just wondering, uh, have you encountered any kind of uh, limits like this where the existing system is just not set up to even allow you to do certain things? Yeah, no, there's a lot of regulatory barriers. I mean, you know, one that a lot of people complain about are, are homeowners, associ homeowners associations, right? If you're If you're wanting to like, have some, you know, small scale livestock or, or grow food in like a suburb with an HOA, you know, oftentimes you're gonna run into a lot of problems, right? So there's, there's that, yeah. um, you know, a lot of the regulatory things around food safety. So of course we want our food to be safe. Right. And so, you know, you could say in theory, there's good reason for these food safety regulations. Um, but of course the regulatory process often gets corrupted um, I think what's happened, and this has happened not just in food, but in many industries where the larger corporations are, are pro-regulation because they can easily pay the lawyers to, you know, to, uh, to work that out for them, whereas that's a barrier to entry for a smaller, for the smaller guy, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, some of these regulations then become like you basically just it, it, it like you need a full time lawyer basically to 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 jump through all the hoops, which you know, and then of course that's that smothers, you know, that smothers local enterprise, and that it, it becomes oppressive, right? And so that's that's very much a real thing. Um, in terms of like you know, I, I also think thinking about regulation differently is important. Like if you're selling something at a farmer's market, um, I think that the there should be a little bit higher standard of like is this food safe or not? Right. And so there has to be some minimum viable checks. Um, if you're, if you're, if you're trading it with your neighbors, I think that the, that, that minimum bio, you know, special should be much lower. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, like if we're engaged in a, just a peer to peer relationship, um, you know, however, you know, whether that's gifting or barter or there's some kind of monetary transaction involved, um, you know, that's where kind of my, my libertarian impulse comes in, right. Or agorist impulse of like, 
you know, that's it's nobody's business but ours, right? <laughs> if if you know, I, I see I see how they raise their animals or whatever, I see how they butcher them, then you know, then the state shouldn't come in and tell me that that I can't buy from them. Of course, people get around that, right? Like you buy a share in the cow, you become a co-owner of the cow and that gets right, right. Yeah, like, that's exactly yeah. what they talked about. They're like, you set up like a trust and then like- Yeah, so, you know, you but it's just ridiculous. They have to go through all that, you know, all that stuff to begin with. Mm-hmm. As far as butchering, so one issue we have here up mountain is, is that there's no good place to butcher large livestock like, a, like cows here. Yeah, it has to be off mountain right now. And that's just kind of like, you know, there's regulatory issues which make it difficult and just, you know, getting the coordination and capital together that, you know, we can, you know, butcher closer, closer to home. Now, of course, I, I prefer some kind of system where you can have like a mobile butchering thing where like somebody basically comes with a trailer to your, to your place and it basically happens on farm and, you know, mm-hmm. it's streamlined and that would be great. Um, part of the reason why, so I eventually want to get larger livestock. I don't have yet. I want to use this land for things besides just, hey. Uh, and planting trees and stuff. Um, and, you know, one reason I, I probably opt for sheep, sheep or goats is that the butchering is a lot easier, you know, and like, like for cows, I'd have to basically both legally and logistically, I'd have to do it off mountain. Whereas with sheep, I could probably learn to do it myself or get some friends, you know, to help me out or that, you know, that, that capability is very hyper local. Um, and, and, you know, and that, it's perhaps I would opt to get cows, but it's just, you know, that's, that's a regulatory and just a logistical issue that, you know, would prevent that. Hmm. So now that we've talked a little bit about sort of like, you know, some of the broader regulatory challenges, um, Hmm. obviously, I mean, I'm not sure if the listeners really care for us to get like super into specifics of like food regulations. Hmm. Um, but I thought we'd move on to sort of the political economy aspects of this um, because, you know, you and I have interacted briefly on Twitter about this. And Mm -hmm. I think it is sort of like one of those stronger objections to regenerative regenerative agriculture as a movement. If you're very cynical, you just say, well, you know, maybe someone for ideological reasons or just personal satisfaction wants to engage in this activity, uh, even though, you know, maybe a strictly utilitarian utilitarian analysis might tell you that it's like unproductive labor um, Mm. or low productivity labor. Um, But there's still just a problem with making the political economy of this kind of thing actually scale up. Right. Mm. And so the objection is you can do this for yourself. Maybe you could do this in a small community, but it will never achieve the kind of scale, the kind of systemic change um, that you're envisioning because of the fact that like returns to scale and other things that are inherent to the existing industrial food system um, Mm. are just too great to overcome. How are you thinking about the political economic challenges to regenerative agriculture? They're definitely very, very high. I mean, we're definitely swimming upstream uh, and there's, there's multiple reasons for that. Um, Economies of scale arguments, you know, it's that's somewhat valid, although um, I would say that, uh, well, one, as a society, our government is is it's not a free market like we're subsidizing uh, commodity corn production for ethanol, which is just a ridiculous policy, you know, it's a complete boondoggle or to provide feed for, you know, cattle and concentrated feeding operations which also has, you know, 
pretty negative ethical uh, dimension as well, as well as not being sustainable. We can get into why that would be. Um, so, so there's, you know, so one is like, we're not playing on a level, level playing field, right? The, the subsidies are still very much tilted towards supporting the large scale commodity farmers. Now they're also subsidized by cheap diesel fuel. Um, they're subsidized by, uh, uh, fertilizers, petrol fertilizers, which are derived from natural gas, right? So the whole system right now is completely dependent on abundant and cheap fossil fuels. Um, if that were to change, um, you know, and there's a lot of people who, you know, think that we're at or near peak oil or, you know, peak fossil fuels, and it's going to get more and more expensive to, to extract, that would change the calculus significantly. There's also the externalities issue where, um, you know, many of the environmental externalities of industrial agriculture, you know, they're very numerous, you know, there's, a, you know, I could like list off a whole thing, you know, losing topsoil, biodiversity loss, um, compacting the soil. So, you know, you're not re recharging the aquifer. So you start having water, water crises, uh, water pollution, all the chemicals get into the water supply, get into our bodies, right. Create, you know, all kinds of unknown illnesses and, and pathologies, you know, probably yeah. in society, create dead zones in the ocean. You know, if you're, uh, there's also, you know, the carbon cycle as well. Um, you know, much of industrial agriculture releases carbon from the soil where it's actually uh, a very good use into the atmosphere, which reflects sunlight, which, you know, creates um, climate weirding and various heating, you know, and just, you know, we can get, that's a whole, that's a whole, you know, rabbit hole there. Um, and so there's many, and then, um, and then there's also regional fragility, right? So like most farmers in Iowa, for example, have to go to the supermarket to basically buy all of their food, right? You can say, it's oh, that's efficient. They're, they're monocropping, that's efficient. But, right. you know, if there was an energy shock or there was a, a fertilizer price shock, or suddenly, you know, the climate started getting weirder and weirder and their crops mm -hmm. were failing, uh, then suddenly they'd be as they, they'd be as fragile as everyone else. You know, contrast that with a few decades ago when many more people had smaller farms, many even commodity farmers also had their own gardens, also produced food for themselves and their community. That's less and less these days, although not completely gone. Um, and so if you take all those things into account, there's just a lot of if you're, you know, if you're thinking in terms of a utility maximizing framework, there's a lot of costs to the current system that aren't being accounted for. Um, so so what does that mean for people who are seeing uh, regenerative agriculture as kind of a way forward? Um, right now, I still think we're in prefiguration mode. And I keep using this term, I know, but I think at this point, um, you know, uh, with the current structural conditions as they are, um, there's not going to be like this, you know, revolution towards regenerative agriculture. I think what we're trying to do is basically in very difficult conditions, swimming upstream, we're trying to prove out viable systems, right? And we're in the proof of concept stage. Um, and I think that when the structural conditions change, um, again, you know, if the price of energy uh, changes, if, if diesel fuel becomes less available, for example, uh, or if the climate gets weirder or, you know, what have you, then uh, the whole calculus is going to shift. And suddenly, even from a, you know, just a, you know, bare bones economic analysis, regenerative agriculture is going to start looking more and more, more and more attractive um, and more and more profitable as well. Um, so I guess that's, that's kind of a nutshell version. I mean, 
there's a whole, there's a great article um, called the political economy of agroecology, which mm -hmm. kind of gets into these, these issues of, you know, industrial agriculture relies on external inputs. Um, it's, it, it's a part of a linear system model um, has these waste products that don't get reintegrated. It, it gets dispersed into the environment itself. Uh, whereas agroecology, there's not the same as regenerative agriculture, but there's a lot of similarities. Um, you know, it produces some more circular system. Um, it regenerates mm -hmm. a lot of its own inputs. Um, and, you know, it has a lot less pollution in general associated with the process. Uh, it is more labor intensive. So this is, this is a big thing is that. So, so there's no, externalities no, 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 testing. there's no getting around the fact that regenerative agriculture, agro, agriculture, what have you would be more labor intensive. And what that would mean is that we would need, and, you know, just if you want smaller scale farms, you just need more farmers, right? Is this, there's no way around that. And so when they say that industrial agriculture is more efficient, usually what they're saying is that it has a higher labor productivity. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and so we would need many more people to get involved with food production, you know, whether them as a farmer or as a homesteader or informal, you know, just food production, um, uh, you know, there would just need men, many more people in, in, involved with that. Um, Shoot, there's one more one more add-on point I was going to make there. Um, anyway, I forgot the last thing I was going to say. Go ahead. Oh, um, well, so I guess that was a lot. There's sort of two. There's one sort of thing that I wanted to clarify just for the listeners so that uh, just because I think it's a an important point to illustrate and make more uh, more explicit. And then there's another thing that's sort of just commentary on what you just stated so the first thing i would say is that there's a lot of people don't realize when they're talking about utility maximization that mm -hmm. uh, this is like a characteristics of systems in general that there's a trade-off between efficiency and redundancy right mm -hmm. and when you make a system more efficient uh, almost by definition you make it less redundant and that actually makes it fragile and so mm -hmm. what really we're talking about is that the focus on uh, hyper-optimization for efficiency makes our food system fragile. And you actually want some inefficiency, you want some redundancy in order to make it more resilient, make it more um, robust. Yeah. Um, and so that's sort of what, like, like one part of what you're saying is the system failures will make the uh, cost of doing it this way too high for people to continue on this, you know, trajectory. Um, mm -hmm. And then the other part you're saying is that there are sort of um, additional externalities that are not being priced into the current system, right? Okay. And with um, eco agroecology, you're actually taking all those externalities into account and you're having a more holistic um, system design where things are priced in appropriately. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and so I. Well, I mean, I was taking some notes, um, yeah, yeah. but uh, so I just wanted to like, I guess, clarify those two aspects of what we've, we've mm -hmm. been discussing so that people can get a better picture in their heads about why this is important and why this matters and why it's not just right. sort of like uh, doom pontificating or something about food supply chains or something like that. Yeah. Um, there are very important like structural system dynamics at play that uh we should be thinking about when we're considering you know why why these things might be more tenable in the future yeah i mean one thing i'll just note real quick is that 
you can't hyper-optimize for either resilience or efficiency to the exclusion of the other. Like you need a balance, right? Like, like you don't want it to be so inefficient or so redundant that you just don't, you know, your productivity plunges, right? Um, you don't want to be so efficient that suddenly, you know, you're, you're, you become very fragile to any kind of system shock. Um, I think we've gone too far in the efficiency hyper-optimization and, you know, we have to kind of move back towards the center. I'm not, you know, so we still want to, you know, find how can we make these processes more efficient? And I think a big part of permaculture and the permaculture movement in general, that's fascinating is that there people are just constantly tinkering and figuring out how can I make this whole system not to optimize one crop, but say, you know, a, a number of different outputs. How can I improve this system? How can I, you know, using systems thinking is very much a complexity kind of, kind of framework. Um, you know, how can we stack more and more functions, right? If I'm putting out something like if I put out a fence here, can it serve three different functions instead of one, right? How can we improve efficiency, but within a framework that, you know, within a more holistic framework that, by the way, also accounts for more externalities and, and you know, not only decreases negative externalities, but produces positive externalities as well, right? Like, so for example, if you have more biodiversity that, that provides pollinator habitat, which benefits not just your farm but but many different farms right and you know one of the one of the many down, you know negative externalities in industrial agriculture is we have a pollinator crisis right the bees are dying you know if our pollinators die and unless we can replace them with little drone bees which i think is a re, you know pretty ridiculous idea you know like we're gonna like there will just be famine right like like right you know so there's all you know so so yeah just wanted to add that you know, it's, it's, it's seeking out efficiencies, but within a more holistic framework. And I think you kind of framed it that way, which is, which is nice. Yeah. So that's sort of like one way of thinking about it. One thing I wanted to ask you about the low productivity of labor and about how these sort of alternative political economic arrangements might, you know, increase labor costs is mm. automation, right? So mm. Automation is one way that you can you can reduce labor costs um, and you can increase the efficiency of labor. Um, and if I was to imagine myself, you know, I show up in your homestead one day and I say, we're going to start like doing all kinds of automated automation and monitoring of your crops. I'm going to like take a bunch of raspberry pies and like stick them everywhere and start doing all kinds of like weird IOT stuff with like water systems and other things like that. Um, that's one way that I imagine that's sort of like a techno optimist uh, way of integrating this where you could have, I, I could imagine at least mm. a bunch of small homesteads or farms that are doing regenerative, you know, agriculture, agroecology, but they're leveraging computer systems and other kinds of automation to make it, you know, extremely efficient to be able to keep doing what they're doing and not have to employ a huge amount of labor. Um, what do you what, sort of like solar punk, I guess? What do you yeah. think of that uh, concept? I think there's scope. There's some scope for that. Um, I think that there is some scope for automating tasks. I mean, a very simple example, you know, might be a trivial example, but it's like so I have a I have a solar powered automatic chicken door opener. Right. And that's saves me having to go down and open up the chicken coop, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and so that's just, you know, that's great. And I, I'm glad that the technology was developed. Um, you know, I think some degree of monitoring, you know, that you can kind of monitor, 
you know, plant health or soil health or whatever, using these systems is good. But I also think that you have to be a little bit discerning, like, like not just, you know, the, the fanciest new gadget for its own sake, right? You have to be very discerning about what are the trade-offs here. So, you know, one trade-off of, you know, just bringing in robots to everything is that robots, you know, require materials, right? Well, one of the biophysical limits that we're running up against is that we're starting to run out of a lot of the, the key precious metals that we need for, you know, even many of our, uh, what we call like green energy systems, right? Cobalt, um, you know, copper, uh, lithium, right? Like these are going to become, start, start, be, we're going to start hitting some, some limits as to how much of this stuff we can extract and especially in certain periods of time. And, and then there's the trash issue, right? Like it breaks down, what are you gonna do with all this trash, right? And so, so I, yeah, I think there's definitely some scope for automations for, for some labor saving. I, I don't think we can or should go back to pre-industrial peasant agriculture. I, I don't think that's what we're trying to do. Um, we do want to save some labor so we don't have 90% of the populations you know, uh, involved with agriculture. But I, I do think realistically we would need maybe 10 to 20% of people, you know, maybe 10% involved almost full-time in agriculture and another 40% involved partially in, in growing some kind of food. Um, uh, and and why, why can't we do that? Well, because we have the technology, we have the knowledge that we didn't have in the past. Um, so we can use that to our advantage, but, but you, you just have to, you have to look for what are these trade-offs? Is there a lower tech, lower material intensive, lower energy intensive option available uh, that's, that's just as good or, 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 or just quite as good, right? So you have to take a full kind of wide boundary systems, you know, uh, kind of analysis into account of like, is this fancy mm -hmm. new gadget actually worth, you know, worth it if we're actually accounting for the real cost of the embodied energy in this product, you know, including mining, you know, manufacturing, et cetera, et cetera, you know, waste disposal um, and, um, you know, uh, are, are we going to automate ourselves out of existence? That's a whole other, that's a much broader, you know, you know, you know, a lot of people who are very concerned about AI are concerned that we're going to, with AI and robots, we're going to automate humans out of existence. They're going to find us redundant and they're going to kill us. Right. That's, that's yeah, what right, the right. people yeah, yeah. are worried about. We're a long ways away. <laughs> yeah, maybe, but you know, AI has these kind of recursive, you know, uh, kind of, you know, like it can speed up very quickly. Um, yes. Uh, I, I happen to think that it, we are a long way away of robots being, you know, being able to to basically, you know, run a homestead operation. I, I think that that, that's, that would be very far in the future. And I don't think that, that would actually happen. Um, so, yeah. So I, I, I guess what I'm saying is I think there there is scope scope with some automation on the homestead some some tech but we just have to be have discernment and and take a wide wide boundary systems systems kind of analysis of what do we bring on and what do we not, not bring on right and and i i think this is sort of one area where perhaps you and i have a little bit of disagreement i mean it's okay for us to disagree i think um okay. <laughs> i'm more of like a i want i'm like a high energy futurist so i imagine a future where more humans are even are consuming even more energy than they were before. Now, I'm not sure as much about the material constraints. There may yeah. be some more serious like rare earth metals, rare earth mineral material constraints. I haven't done the full analysis on that. Um, and to be honest, I haven't done the full analysis on energy either, but I'm generally pro energy. I want uh, more people using more energy and I wanna find solutions for doing that. 
Um, so, I mean, again, I'm not going to make it like a big point of contention, but it is just sort of a difference between us that I think is worth acknowledging. Um, I had a, I had a conversation with on Gregory Landra's podcast. He has a planetary regeneration podcast with him and Matthew Burkowski, where I was basically debating them on this exact point. Um, Mm -hmm. and it wasn't really debate. It was more of a co co exploration. Um, so I mean, I, I think, I think it's a possibility and this is kind of what Gregory argues and Matthew argues that we can have high energy regeneration if we get the monetary system right if we get kind of the incentive landscape right where basically like right now if we added a lot of energy system i just think we would speed up uh planetary overshoot biophysical overshoot faster uh, even if it was clean energy right so say we're not putting out as much carbon in the atmosphere we're still we're still polluting the the oceans we're still you know uh destroying uh biodiversity etc cetera, etc cetera. um we're still extracting materials uh faster and faster um it's possible. Um, I remain somewhat skeptical, but but not closed off to the possibility that you could have a high energy regeneration where you, you're starting to close linear systems, make them into circular systems. You're, you're developing the technology to to recycle materials at a at kind of an atomic an atomic level. Um, you know, metamaterials uh, where you can start taking things out of the waste stream and you know reforming them back into material. Like so, I, I can see that that is a potential trajectory maybe um the question is where does this energy come from this gets into like you know so you know if we're putting all of our hopes on fusion energy for example i still think that's a huge wild card and i don't think anybody really knows if that's going to be viable in say 30 years and scalable in 30 years um i just don't think anyone knows um i do think that uh you know our technology so far has kept up you know, like we've been extracting fossil fuels, they're getting harder, harder to reach. Our technology has been keeping up with that. You know, our extraction technology has been keeping up with that pretty well. Um, I don't think that that's going to go on forever. Um, so, and, and right now, you know, 20% of the global economy is, is run by electricity, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the rest is run by liquid fuels, basically, and coal. Um, so even if we were to, you know, like build, you know, uh, uh, you know, moonshot solar panel, wind turbines, fourth generation nuclear, whatever, we'd still just be producing electricity. Um, we, we, right. We don't currently use electricity to make our concrete, to make our steel, to make our fertilizers, um, you know, all of the, the mining and fabrication to even produce these, these, you know, uh, these green energy technologies require fossil fuels. We're very, very, very far from being able to maintain our, you know, to, to be able to basically switch to a say green energy, low externality energy. Like we're not, we're just not even close yet. Um, you know, and so then the question is, well, high energy, if we're doing high energy for high energy's sake, if we're wasting energy, that's not very good. Um, the energy we have, I would say most of, you know, all of the conspicuous consumption you know, is very wasteful, especially in, in Western societies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where is this energy going to, where is this going to come from? Again, if it, if, it, if it comes down to fusion, fusion gets online, it's this breakthrough technology, um, that would solve a lot of problems for sure. Not all of them, not the liquid fuels problem per se, but it would solve a lot of problems. 
Um, but we, again, we'd, we'd still like, we did that without changing the monetary basing, basically our monetary system in yeah. biophysical health and natural resource availabilities, basically eco-basing our currencies, then, you know, it would probably just, just speed up planetary collapse. So I guess your main objection is, I mean, there's a objection about like, okay, we're just not ready for that yet. That's fair enough. Um, and then the other thing is sort of that that might it might just enable us this this sort of way of thinking might just enable us to exacerbate existing pathologies and not actually deal with the problem. Um, yeah. Now, my response to that is that, well, look, uh, I I don't I don't want to exacerbate unsustainable system configurations either. Um, mm. But at the same time, you know, I don't think that like it's fair to humanity to just give them the strong medicine, which is like some sort of degrowth future, some sort of low energy future that immiserates millions and millions yeah. of people. I mean, well, let, let's real quick, let's get into this idea of degrowth. Cause I think that there's a lot of, there's not very much precision around this idea. So mm -hmm. I think maybe we can agree that GDP is a shit measurement of human well-being. Would you yeah. agree with that? Tim? No. Yeah. I agree with that. Of course. So, so, so then the question is, okay, I mean, I think degrowth, I think that word is itself is problematic um, because, you know, we don't, there's many things that we, that we want to grow. Right. Um, I would say we do want to get degrowth, you know, just total linear throughput, extraction throughput and waste, right. This linear system, I, I do think we want to degrow that. And, and um, I think maybe we can agree on that. Uh, and, and, and so in one sense, that would be degrowth. Um, and GDP is really measures measures that activity, right? Mm -hmm. um, if there's an oil spill in the ocean and you spend billions of dollars cleaning it up, that contributes to GDP, right? Um, if you cut down a rainforest to grow soybeans for cows um, and you screw up the whole hydrologic cycle for the whole earth, uh, that contributes to GDP, right? None of the costs, you know, maybe the costs, and even like the hurricanes that come because the hydrologic cycle is messed up, uh, creates disasters, and then the rebuilding contributes to GDP, right? And so mm -hmm. there's many, I think, alternative indicators of health, you know, more holistic indicators of health that takes into account, um, you know, might take into account, you know, just total level of inequality in society. It might take into account environmental externalities, uh, quality of life, um, how happy are people, you know, various happiness indices and all of these things. I think if we got our metric right of what we want to grow, then this whole degrowth growth thing would be a moot point, right? We'd be like, okay, of course we want to grow the things that are good and we want to decrease the things that are bad, right? And mm -hmm. so we want to grow, you know, we want to regrow topsoil, right? We want to regrow human connection and, you know, strong viable communities where people have a meaning and purpose in their life. Uh, we want to de decrease existential despair you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, so I, I think, yeah. So when we talk, I, I guess I just wanted to throw that kind of, that kind of caveat out there that, you know, just to make this conversation more precise of like degrowth of what? Growth of what, right? Yeah, I mean, that's fair enough. Um, we can, I mean, we can get into the semantics of it, but I think just generally speaking, I mean, I, I agree with all of those points that like we want to have a more holistic conception of human flourishing. GDP is like a terrible way of capturing it. Um, it 
you know, and there's all these like broken window fallacies and other things you can do with it to sort of um, jerry rig it. And, uh, you know, there's over financialization and other things like that, that Mm -hmm. again, are not really reflective of like the underlying health of the economy. Um, So all of those are like good points, but I think the issue for me is just sort of the framing of like, we want people to consume less. We want people to use less energy. Um, It's sort of, uh, I mean, a, I just don't see the people that say that often actually doing that in their own lives. And then sure, B, sure. Uh, it, it's it's always sort of this thing of like, well, you know, if you're an American that's saying that you're already like using way more resources on an annual basis than most people yeah. around the world and, and many orders of magnitude more than most people throughout human history. So yeah. it's to me, it's sort of just like you're it it tastes like somebody trying to deny that life to someone else and that's sort of my main issue i I will make a clarification here that most serious degrowth theorists would say that the poorest countries in the world need to still grow Uh, it's Mm -hmm. a aggregate degrowth um they would say that you know americans you know other western societies just need to use less energy less materials overall um so, so I just want to throw that caveat because I think that's a common misunderstanding. Is like it's not uh, degrowthers aren't saying, uh, oh, you know, poor Haiti, like you're in a collapsed society right now, but you know, you, you can't grow. Like, you know, we're in this new political program. Like, that's not what the degrowth movement is is really saying. Um, now, of course, people can take exception to like American lifestyles. You know, American fuck yeah, like like we don't want you know some some global panel of degrowthers saying what we can and can't do. And I totally I, I totally understand that. That sentiment, but I, I would challenge um, again. You know, what is it that contributes to the good life, right? Is it, mm. you know, is is our you know insane amount of conspicuous consumption, uh, you know, especially in American society and other countries as well, is that really making us happier, right? Is you know buying new clothes every you know every you know every few weeks instead of fixing the clothes that you have. You know, is that really making is that really making us happier? Um, you know, is you know you can get into. I mean, there's there, there's many examples I can give there, right? Where I I, I think it's well, I, I don't think it's true that hmm. we need this much consumption, especially in a linear system. Um, I don't think it's true that we need this much consumption as a society. Uh, to maintain a high quality of life. And I actually think we can increase our quality of life. We're moving from a consumeristic society to a producerism. You know, I, I like this frame. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a nice frame. Right into producerism, right? Yeah, Where, right. you know, more and more people locally are producing their own stuff. It's more resilient. It's also a little bit less efficient. And so there's like an, an implicit degrowth in there, but it's from the bottom up. It's not imposed from the top down, right? Um, and so like, you know, if if more people locally are making their own stuff, they're probably going to build it to last, you know, that you're not going to have, you know, built for the dump. Um, you know, they're going to be less, less um, influenced by advertising saying that, you know, their life sucks unless they buy the new gizmo or the new gadget that they're going to throw right, out right. You know, in a few weeks. Um, you know, there's a lot of parts of our consumer society that are actually making us less spiritually healthy and aren't contributing to quality of life. So I would say we need to have a careful conversation about like, what is it that gives us a high quality of life? more we produce for ourselves the more that we can define that for ourselves but we're also going to be probably become less consumeristic and that will implicitly mean less energy material throughput overall 
Well, I mean, of course, I don't think that consumption for the consumption's sake is necessarily a good or healthy um, culture to have. I would yeah. like, I mean, I agree with many of those points. I guess the issue with me is it strikes me as a kind of like asceticism. Um, and, you know, and then I get like alarm bells in my head. It's like, this is communism, right? Like mm-hmm. going off and I'm like, you know, uh, I just don't want tell- people telling people what they can and can't do, even though I want to. Um, I, I I generally agree. I mean, for me, myself, personally, I don't consume a lot of stuff. I don't buy a lot of stuff. Uh, I believe in like a supply side view of, of life. Like you should be producing things, um, mostly. And then the excess consumption, you should be like reinvesting capital into producing more stuff basically. Um, so I think we're in a lot of agreement there and maybe this is more like a framing issue. And a lot of the debate, unfortunately has already been framed for us by other people having arguments about, you know, degrowth, growth, whatever. Um, so yeah, I mean, maybe we can revisit this some other time. Um, with that being said, Jason, uh, I think we're basically out of time here. So yeah. I want to just like thank you for coming on. Um, yeah. I don't want to just leave everybody hanging though. So um, I guess one last thing before I let you go. Um, what is like sort of your hope for the DO community and plans for the future? What are you the most optimistic about right now? Let's leave on a high note. Yeah. Um, one thing is that there's more and more people who are part of the network who are meeting up locally. Um, last year we had a we had a few regional meetups, um, you know, a couple of regional meetups with like, you know, an event, you know, of like you know, a lot of people getting together um and doing some kind of practical thing, a workshop. Um this fall, I'm getting meat chickens this this fall, and I'm probably gonna invite you know, a bunch of friends, both locally that I just know locally, but also people who are part of this larger network to come help me process chickens, you know, it's free labor. Uh, but, you know, it will also, everybody will learn things. How, to, how do you process chickens? Um, and, you know, people go home with, with, with some of that, with some of that as well. Um, and so that's, that's exciting for me, the, the prospect of actually building things, uh, you know, in real life. Um, the, the podcast is always very exciting. Just because, you know, I just think we continue to, to have a lot of fascinating conversations with many different kinds of people. Um, and so that's just constantly, you know, exciting to me of like just building out the network itself. Um, that's that's fun. Um, what else? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we've gone through we, we're, we're kind of going through this evolutionary transition right now like i kind of alluded to it earlier where i think we're moving from more of a big tent thing to more of like you know a campground kind of kind of kind of kind of model um and so you know and i think we're you know we're at a phase i I think i think do is kind of anti-fragile to system shocks and the so what that means on one side is that when there's like a crisis there's like a war you know prospect there's you know, pandemic and lockdowns, or there's, you know, reports from the nude of, of a food crisis, then, you know, a lot of energy comes in the DO and everyone's like, hey, this is what we're built for. Fuck yeah. You know, um, when things are kind of like, at least in the news, things are just kind of like, eh, things are okay right now. There's kind of like a calm period. Then there's not as much energy coming in because people are focused on other things. And I think that's where we are right now, where we're just kind of like, we're just kind of, you know, we're just, we're just, 
you know, doing our thing, cranking out podcasts, you know, expanding the network. Um, you know, but I, I do, I do see, you know, I, I do see us as being well-placed to, um, you know, be very helpful in, you know, in future shocks that I think are inevitably coming, you know, whether, and we don't know what those are, right. We, we don't know if it's, you know, whatever it's war, you know, some kind of AI, you know, craziness, some kind of, you know, uh, energy shock, you know, climate related, you know, natural disasters, like we don't know. Right. But I, but I think that, you know, we're just right now, we're kind of just, you know, in kind of a, a calm mode of just doing our thing, but, but developing capacity. And, you know, so it's not like the, it's not like edge of our seat exciting, but it's kind of like, yeah, this is, you know, uh, this is good. Um, so that's, that's, that, that itself is exciting. It's just, you know, just slowly, slowly developing, slowly building. Yeah. Good steady progress and, um, yeah. capacity for responsiveness. Yeah. All right. Well, Jason, um, it's been a pleasure having you on, uh, as always, we always, always have a great time. It's always, it's always a pleasure coming on your podcast. You ask very good questions. Um, yeah. And I, you're, you're a great, you know, kind of, uh, you know, you're a great interlocutor in terms of a little bit challenging, you know, where we're coming from and, and you ask, you ask good questions, you, you know, you ask the right questions. So I really appreciate coming on your podcast. Yeah. And I mean, again, uh, likewise, I mean, I always have a good time. You're a nice, um, I mean, it's always nice to just speak with other like flexible thinkers. I yeah. don't like people that get to like too bogged down in their rigidity. Right. And, you know, and, and even myself, you know, you get pressure to sort of like fit into some ideological mold and yeah, uh, I just I, I hate the feeling. It's icky. Anyway, um, thank you, Jason, <laughs> for coming on. Uh, Jason Snyder on Twitter at Cognizer. The podcast is Doomer Optimism. They're everywhere um, and you can go check them out and you can learn more about what they're doing. All right. That's all, folks. Cool. Thanks, Alex. Take care.